Hello, and welcome to the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. I'm recording this episode in late September 2022, and we are quickly approaching a major milestone for the show. 10,000 lifetime downloads after a little over three years. Which, for some big-time podcasters, is like 10 seconds worth of listeners, but for an independent podcast like this one, who is not backed by a major company or belongs to a major network, it's pretty exciting. And I wanted to thank every single one of you for taking a chance with the show. Over the past three years, we've had listeners from at least 66 countries around the world, from the U.S. and Canada, Spain and Hong Kong, South Africa, Vietnam, to Brunei. There's even been someone listening in the Ukraine, and they started listening to the show after war broke out in their country. Man, that's pretty humbling. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Now, let's get on with the episode. On this episode, we're going to continue our look back at the 1980s career of iconoclastic British filmmaker Alex Cox. On our previous episode, we spoke about his brilliant 1986 film Sid and Nancy, and we've spoken about his classic 1984 debut Rebo Man back in 2020. So today, we're going to move on to his third feature film, Straight to Hell. Alex Cox had long been interested in Nicaraguan politics and the efforts of the Sandinistan National Liberation Front, who had overthrown the country's Somoza dictatorship in 1979 and set forth to institute national policies for literacy, health care, and gender equality. If you watch Repo Man or Cox's UCLA student film Edge City, both films make various references to Nicaragua and Latin American revolutions, and Cox would visit the country in 1984. He had hoped to shoot a concert film in the capital city of Managua, which would have featured The Clash, The Pogues, and Elvis Costello, amongst others, to help the Sandinistas fund more of their programs. But when Cox could not get the financial backing for the event, he instead decided to write a film that they could all act in. Cox was especially keen on working with Joe Strummer, the legendary guitarist and singer for The Clash, who he had gotten to know on a far stronger basis than the average fan could ever dream of. Written in four days with his regular collaborator, Dick Rude, Cox considered the film Straight to Hell, named after the Strummer-penned 1982 song, to be a loving parody of spaghetti westerns. Cox loved the spaghetti westerns from his youth, especially Giulio Questi's genre-bending western splatter horror film Django Kill If You Live Shoot from 1967. Cox was able to secure a $1 million budget for the film, and he would secure a shooting location in Almeria, Spain, where many of the classic Italian westerns were shot. In a 2012 New York Times article written in conjunction with a week-long retrospective of spaghetti westerns playing at the film Forum, Cox would note that he had shot straight to hell in the same desert as Sergio Leone had made for a few dollars more, and the good, the bad, and the ugly, just down the road from a space that is now known as Leone Ranch. Cox would call in every favor he could get to get the film made. Not only would the film feature Joe Strummer, Shane McGowan and Spider Stacy from The Pogues, and Elvis Costello, Straight to Hell would also feature a number of actors and musicians who had appeared in Sid and Nancy and or Repo Man, including Xander Berkeley, Fox Harris, Courtney Love, Cy Richardson, Xander Schloss, and Del Zamora. And when friends like Dennis Hopper, Jim Jarmusch, or Grace Jones would find their way to visit Cox on set, the filmmaker would find a way to get them into the movie too, even if just for one scene. The storyline in and of itself is a fairly simple one. 
three hitmen are in Los Angeles for a job, but when things go sideways, as they inevitably will in stories like these, they hightail it down to Mexico with the pregnant wife of one of the men to escape the wrath of their employer and robbing a bank along the way as a means to survive. But, as they always inevitably do in stories like these, their car breaks down on the way and they bury the suitcase full of money and head out to find the closest town. Now remember, this is the mid-1980s. They don't have cell phones with GPS and mapping apps that tell them where they are or which way the closest town is. As night falls, they come across an Old West-like town where many of the citizens are addicted to... Coffee. Yes, coffee. There's a bunch of shootouts. Almost everyone dies in the end by one means or another. And only the proto-Samuel L. Jackson, Cy Richardson, comes out of it relatively unscathed. Island Pictures picked up the film for distribution and would set a June 26, 1987 opening date for the film. But as is customary for movies before they open in theaters, they must have a premiere. And why would an iconoclast filmmaker like Alex Cox do a premiere like anyone else? Instead of a red carpet in front of an old-school movie palace with spotlights and paparazzi, Cox wanted to premiere their film at a drive-in, specifically the Pickwick Drive-In in Burbank where guests were asked to dress in, and I quote directly from the invitation, post-apocalyptic fiesta garb. Everyone who attended the premiere was handed a water pistol upon entry, and while many attendees seemed to be having fun during the screening, if not specifically because of the movie, it was noted that a number of cars were observed leaving the movie while it was still unspooling on the screen. The film would open at the Cinema 1 in Midtown Manhattan and the UA Egyptian 2 on Hollywood Boulevard. The reviews for the film were brutal, and the film's opening weekend numbers would suffer, earning a decent $12,000 in New York City, but an abysmal $1,700 in Hollywood. The Egyptian would dump the film after one week, replacing it with Troma's Surf Nazis Must Die, while it would gross a still decent $10,000 from the New York Theater. However, the Samuel Goldwyn Pavilion Cinemas on Los Angeles' west side would pick up the film from the Egyptian, where it would gross $3,000. Still not great, but nearly double what it had grossed in Hollywood the previous weekend. Island Pictures was riding a wave of critical and commercial success, having hit with films like Down by Law, Kiss of the Spider Woman, Mona Lisa, River's Edge, She's Gotta Have It, and The Trip to Bountiful, so they could afford to give straight to hell some extra time to find its audience. But it never did. Outside of a handful of playdates in smaller towns like Santa Cruz, where I saw Straight to Hell during its single-week run at the Nickelodeon Theater in September of 1987, the film would be mostly gone from theaters at the end of July, having sold slightly more than $200,000 worth of tickets. One thing that definitely hurt the film was its R rating, While there is a fair amount of cartoonish blood and gore in the film, the MPAA also gave the film its rating due to its language, according to them, even though no curse words are uttered even once during the film. The word hell is only used in the title of the movie, and at one point, one character yells out what the heck is going on here instead of something more colorful that might normally be used in that situation. Cox wasn't available to do much publicity for the film, as he was already in Nicaragua shooting his next movie, the gleefully anachronistic 1850 set Walker, with Ed Harris as the title character, 
which we'll talk about on our next episode. Now, at this point in the story, the film has played itself out in theaters, and with some luck it would become a cult hit with film lovers thanks to home video and repeated plays on cable, but that didn't happen for Straight to Hell either. And its soundtrack, packed to the gills with new and popular songs by the Pogues, Joe Strummer, and Elvis Costello, didn't take off as one might expect a soundtrack album in the 1980s with those artists would. The film was, for all intent and purpose, dead. That was until 2010. Nearly 25 years after Cox had filmed Straight to Hell, he started to think about the movie again. The rise of the DVD market was giving movies like Straight to Hell a second chance at life, and Cox was starting to notice the film was starting to be discussed more online, and he was getting offers from specialty labels to do some kind of restoration. Luckily for Cox, all of the original film materials, the negative, the sound recordings, and various ephemera, had been acquired by his alma mater, UCLA's famed film archive, so most everything was fully preserved. Cox would add nearly five minutes of additional footage back into the film, do some color correction on the print with the help of the film's cinematographer, the legendary Tom Richmond, and do some digital cleanup of some blood effects. The updated film, now called Straight to Hell Returns, would play at a handful of film festivals and art house theaters in the fall of 2010, before Microcinema DVD released it on home video. And while the film still hasn't become quite a cult classic, it has been discovered by a new generation of film lovers and music lovers who have a sense of nostalgia for those that have been lost along the way, like Joe Strummer, who, as it turned out, was a fairly darn good actor. I have not seen the re-edited Straight to Hell Returns, but I unabashedly love the original 1987 theatrical cut. It's silly and stupid and a boatload of fun, in large part because it's clear they're having a good time making the movie. I know many people are put off by Dick Rude's style of acting, but he's never bothered me. And nothing against Sam Jackson, I love him, man. But he straight up stole Cy Richardson's entire essence. And Alex Cox? He should have been at least as big as Jim Jarmusch, if not Quentin Tarantino. But we'll get into that more in the Walker episode. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again next week. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about Straight to Hell and Alex Cox. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. (laughs) 